This is the Uncommon Sense Podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Emma Shortis from RMIT came in to talk about US politics. We spoke about the Senate impeachment hearings into President Donald Trump, as well as the Democratic presidential candidate race and the upcoming Iowa caucus. Then, Dr. Manu Saunders, an ecologist at the University of New England and co-founder of Wild Pollinator Count, joined me to talk about how your garden is an ecosystem, as well as the importance of pollinators in your garden. You're tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM. Now, I'm very delighted to have with me in the studio Dr. Emma Shortis, who is based at the RMIT EU Studies Centre, um, and she is an expert in US politics, among many other things. And uh, I often speak to Emma about um, US politics. And in fact, we did speak at the end of last year in the my last show for 2019. And it was interesting that we were talking about foreign policy and how Trump hadn't done anything too nutso or crazy and uh, that at least that had been, you know, fairly balanced and considerate and careful. And then, of course, over the summer holidays, we saw him pull the trigger and uh, and really upset Iran. So maybe we'll just quickly touch on that, given I feel like it, it's quite relevant to our last conversation, Emma, and then we'll get on to other things. So welcome, Emma. Hi, Amy. Welcome back to you too. Thank you. It's so great to see you. Thank you too. Now, for, for those who were, I don't know if anyone had a very relaxing summer holiday. <laughs> Not in Australia. Did, no. no, it wasn't. It was quite, um, yes, yeah, stressful and anxiety-inducing given the bushfires and the smoke and all the other associated issues. And then I guess on top of that, we saw this um, major conflict point with Iran. And I think a lot of people were kind of looking around going, oh, my God, is this end times? Are we going to follow America into another war? Yep. Because Donald Trump did something that no one was expecting and uh, not even his advisors were expecting. What exactly did he do, yeah, Emma? Yeah, that's right. So, so Trump ordered essentially the assassination of an uh, Iranian general, a very, a very prominent, a very high-up general who's responsible for the death of, of course, significant numbers of people. But what Trump did was, was essentially order a kind of extrajudicial killing while he was in Iraq. And this sent shockwaves, I think, through through the Middle East because this was a really significant um, action to take. Previous presidents had been given the option of assassinating this um, this general and didn't take it because of the upheaval that it would have caused. So Obama could have do- done this and, and chose not to. And, and Trump went ahead and did it. And, and I guess took out this general and has been kind of crowing about it ever since. But of course, that led to the prospect of retaliation from the Iranians. And I think all of us who watch US foreign policy closely became extremely concerned because we know once, you know, once the ball starts rolling on these kinds of things, it can be very difficult to stop them. Mm. The Iranians in the end did retaliate. They they hit um, an American base in Iraq, I believe, and, and killed a, a number of Iraqis and injured some Americans. It's now coming out that uh, some Americans had some traumatic brain injuries. Um, oh, no. No, no American deaths. And, and so tra- horrible that yeah. Iraqis died as yeah, well. Yeah, absolutely. You know? It is absolutely, it is, you know, horrible. And, and again, we're faced with this prospect of, of that 
escalation, which which sort of hasn't happened in this case. But we, you know, we were just talking before before we came on air about how we kind of focus on things with Trump. For you know, this was this was like a week, so this mm. is a significant amount of time that this issue um, sort of captured the headlines, and then it fades away. But but I don't think the Iran issue is going away because we still have this issue of Trump, you know, having withdrawn from the Iran nuclear deal, and that issue is still festering, and and Iran itself being kind of um, in the throes of, of protests and upheaval as a re- result of American actions yet again, you know, which has happened to Iran again and again since going all the way back to 1953 in an American-sponsored coup. So this is, this is I think, a long story mm. and, and, as always with Trump, a pretty scary one to keep our eyes on. Yeah, and I think a lot of people were pointing to some very old footage of Donald Trump talking about Barack Obama and saying, oh, you know, Barack Obama will get desperate, he'll want to get re-elected, so of course he'll go and bomb Iran. <laughs> there's always a tweet. There's always there's always a tweet or a, Trump, a video of Trump saying something, isn't there? And yeah. it is, you know, it was kind of straight out of the Trump playbook of, of things are going badly mm. at home and so we'll do something overseas It's like a dead cat strategy. Exactly, exactly. And, and look, I should, you know, I should be fair and say that Trump's not the only president to have done that. You know, Bill Clinton is accused all the time of doing exactly the same thing during his own impeachment trial in in Kosovo in order in in mm. organizing NATO strikes in in Kosovo to to distract from things at home because we know there is especially in, in the US when when the US embarks on military interventionism there's a kind of rally around the flag effect and we saw that with Iran you know we saw all of the pretty much all of the major networks kind of saying you know you have to support this action because this guy is a bad guy and of course he's a bad guy but you know we kind of degenerate into these discussions of, of of like goodies and baddies and, you know, mm. actual grown human adults are talking about baddies on, on network television, you know. It's pretty it's pretty shocking to watch when you're talking about, you know, the most powerful country in the world. Yeah, and also, I mean, was it really legal given that they were doing it in someone else's country? Like they were attacking an Iranian in Iraq and although they have, you know, bases there and a military presence and have been training Iraqis, um, you know, and building up their military presence, surely it's not really following international law or protocol to go and do something like that and not even talk or consult your allies or yeah, no, anyone. It's not, I mean, I'll, I'll sort of hedge in that I'm not an ex- expert in international law, but no, it's not It's not illegal to just go around killing people, you know, in the terms of international law extrajudicially. Well, because um, it was in, in anticipation of apparently something that was going exactly. to happen, possibly, but no one's really given evidence to say what exactly Soleimani was going to do and no. what threat he actually posed in an immediate sense to yeah, Americans. Exactly. And and all indications are he didn't actually pose an immediate threat. You know, the the administration in, in its typical fashion has been contradicting itself. Trump, you know, Trump said that he was planning something monumentous and then somebody else said, oh, no, it was because he killed some Americans in a previous strike. And, you know, so we don't have evidence. Mm. And, and I guess we will say that I, I think, especially in the Middle East, you know, we're used to Americans, the Americans doing this and, and effectively breaking international law and, and doing it pretty regularly. Um, and I guess it just shows to us, you know, international law is only as strong as, as we can make it. And if the Americans decide that they're going to break international law, generally they just can go ahead and do it without significant consequences. Unfortunately, that is, that's the world we live in. Yeah. Now, just one last thing before we head into all the other things we're <laughs> going to talk about. I noted at this exact time that, um, funnily enough, uh, Iraq 
the parliament of Iraq uh, voted and basically said, we want American troops out of our country. You need to get out. And America apparently sent a letter saying, we're going to be withdrawing our troops and then sent another letter saying, we take that back. We've changed our minds or that was the wrong letter. Yeah, what, it was, what was a, going on. It was a draft or something that was sent by mistake to the to the Iraqis saying that the Americans were going to withdraw, which just kind of shows you what utter chaos this administration is in that something like that could happen. You know, the potential for serious diplomatic incident. But it's also, I think, more broadly, you know, an indication of, of just what a huge mess the US presence has made, as we know, mm-hmm. in the Middle East and in Iraq. It's significant that the Iraqi parliament is saying, you know, we want you out. And I think, it, it, again, you know, it shows the lie of Trump's election promise. You know, he, w- he was elected partly on the promise of ending endless wars, of getting the United States out of the Middle East. And he has not done that. I think coming into office, he's been confronted with the reality that now multiple presidents have been confronted with that, that extricating the United States from the Middle East would be incredibly difficult. I think even, you know, even with a, a president who who was committed to that, basically fighting the kind of military industrial complex of the United States in order to make that withdrawal mm. and even the kind of, um, I guess, the foreign policy establishment who will continue to say it's better for us to be there or we just need to do this, we just need a few more troops, we just need a slightly different policy or a little bit more money and we can fix it all. You know, that I think that dream is kind of... <laughs> It has a hold on people in the United States. It's very difficult to convince them otherwise. Yeah, it is. It is. And I think it's also um, interesting the Democrats are picking up on the kind of a kind of feeling that Americans don't want to see more casualties at least and f- and not for nothing, I guess, because there are a lot of people who've been injured um, over there and have come back and have had, you know, real life effects. But as you say, it also, Americans have this kind of view of themselves in the world that isn't exactly how others see America. Yeah, I think that's true. And I, I think we've seen, seen both that trend in the in the Democratic primary. So the Democratic um, candidates for the presidential nominee had uh, have had lots of discussions, of course, about Iran. And I think it's really interesting to contrast that with the debate about Iraq. So, so lots of the... Um, nominees are saying they, you know, we don't want another war in Iran and are also kind of relitigating Iraq. So mm. Biden has copped, Joe Biden has has copped a lot of flack because he voted for the Iraq war when he was a senator. And so I, I think that's really significant because we're, we are seeing this kind of shift with the anti-war candidates like Bernie Sanders and even Elizabeth Warren kind of shifting that debate and saying, you know, this isn't a good thing for us to do. It doesn't matter what our intentions are. Mm. We it will go badly and we need to recognise that and we need to grapple with that. And I think Sanders is the most, you know, he he takes that the furthest in his kind of um, rhetoric, I guess, against American empire, which, you know, is, is significant, I think, to say that in mainstream debates. Very significant, yeah. It's not, not every day you see that because it almost is seen as unpatriotic at times, but he's kind of running it as a patriotic argument that he cares about Americans and domestic policy and their experiences in their daily lives. Absolutely. And I think, you know, he's he's kind of attempting at least to force people to recognise the consequences of American military interventionism in the world in contrast to other candidates and, and Republicans and I guess kind of more um, centrist Democrats who still hold on deeply to the belief that the United States is a force for good in the world. And I think sometimes from the outside, it's it's hard to recognise how deeply that goes. You know, when you mm. see somebody like Elizabeth Warren talking about 
you know, the United States being good in the world and that, you know, we can make a difference in places like the Middle East and Iraq. She's not saying this because, you know, she feels like it's, I guess, the thing that she needs to say in order to placate certain uh, certain sections of the electorate. You know, this is a genuinely deeply held belief in American society mm-hmm. across the political spectrum. Exactly. Now, let's talk a bit about the impeachment hearings, which is exactly what Donald Trump didn't want um, people to be thinking about. Now we get to see um, it all play out in the Senate. And of course, it's uh, controlled by the Republicans. And um, the, I guess, Senate leader is Mitch McConnell, who's this, hmm, I don't know. I can't, I probably will withhold an adjective because (laughs) it won't be the right one and it might be a bit mean. But he's not really all that highly regarded by the Democrats. Yes, that's a very gentle way of putting yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'll let other people read into his bio a bit later on. But he has certainly been stalling and like pushing back on the Democrats and their hopes for this Senate hearing. And particularly they've put they put forward a number of amendments for how this hearing would go. And um, he just like was like, no, nope, slap down. Yeah. Sorry, not going to happen. What were those amendments? Why were they important to the Democrats in terms of this hearing being, I guess, a fair, like um, robust hearing and particularly thinking about the witnesses and um, subpoenas they wanted to issue? Yeah, so this debate is about how the trial plays out, the kind of rules of the trial. And basically the fight is is, is kind of a pretty simple one. It's just around whether, as you said, whether they can call during this trial, whether they can call witnesses, whether they can subpoena documents and whether they can hear new evidence. So the Republicans basically don't want any witnesses. They don't want any evidence. They just want to get it over with as quickly as possible. And because they hold the majority in the Senate, as you said, that's mm. that seems like that's what's going to happen that the the trial won't hear from any witnesses, any new witnesses especially, or any new evidence. They won't be able to go over the old evidence in in um, any detail other than the kind of opening arguments that we've heard. Now, I was sort of, you know, um, reading up this morning again, there's there's a suggestion that the bombshell book by John Bolton, the former National Security Advisor, will will change some senators' minds because he has essentially, the, um, the reportage is saying that he has confirmed that Trump was withholding aid from military aid from Ukraine in order to get them to, to provide this to do this investigation into the Biden so Bolton mm. is, is essentially confirming this which you know is interesting that it's kind of framed as a bombshell because I don't, I don't think that's particularly huge other than kind of confirming what we again what we already know so what the Democrats are trying to do is to get for Republican senators to change their minds and agree or vote to have witnesses and evidence heard during this trial. So again, uh, Republican Senator Mitt Romney is coming up as the potential saviour of American democracy, which is once again kind of terrifying and amazing that people keep putting (laughs) this stock in people like Mitt Romney and he keeps failing. so I, as you can probably hear from my tone of yes. voice, I'm kind of sceptical that, that, that Mitt Romney will save us. <laughs> um, so in that case, if, if Democrats aren't able to convince those four Republicans to vote in favour of having witnesses and evidence, mm. we will have basically a couple of more days of, the, of Trump's defence their arguments, then senators can ask questions of each team that they have to submit in writing. It's all very kind of archaic. And then they'll have a vote. So it could be over as as early as kind of next Monday or Tuesday. Yep. How does that even happen? Like, I feel like in the, um, was it Congress, it was going, it kind of 
went for a while. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It did, and but look, I mean, it didn't. It didn't go for that long, kind of historically speaking. Nixon's yeah. trial went for a couple of years. So, <sighs> sorry, Nixon's the investigation in, yeah. in Congress um, went for a couple of years. So, so this has been relatively quick, kind of historically speaking. Yeah, I guess in the um, in Congress there were like multiple committees that were kind of presenting their own arguments and witnesses and all that kind of stuff. So it kind of that maybe is why it went for longer. Yeah, that's exactly right. And the Senate could choose to do that. You mm. know, they they could choose to have a, a, a more, I guess, a full blown trial with with witnesses and and a kind of forensic um, going over the evidence. But but as I said, Republicans aren't particularly interested in that. The only reason they might be, and they're kind of threatening this, is because if they're allowed to call witnesses, they're threatening to call um, Joe and Hunter Biden to get them to testify around this kind of ridiculous conspiracy theory that's kicked this whole thing off, mm. um, which which would be, you know, quite the spectacle. But I don't – honestly, I don't think they're brave enough to, to go down that path because that means also calling witnesses who would testify against Trump. And, yes. and I think – I do think they want this over as quickly as possible. And they do, I believe, want um, – the Democrats would want to call John Bolton – they would absolutely. So yeah. John Bolton was Trump's former national security advisor, and they they had a falling out, as as Trump does with you know pretty much every single one of his staff members. Mm-hmm. Eventually, um, Bolton is a he's a hawk. You know he he's one of the um, one of the people who for kind of decades have been calling for for a war with Iran. Um, you know, so he's not he's not a nice guy. You know, it's interesting that people kind of the the way the narrative shifts so quickly that again you know Mitt Romney's our savior oh no John Bolton's going to change the narrative you know <laughs> who do you want on your side yeah. I think is a good question to keep to keep asking but but Bolton does you know apparently have this explosive evidence about what Trump was doing and saying in in the Oval Office when it came to Ukraine and and suggesting again that he he is you know breaking a number of laws in in basically asking Ukraine to interfere in the in the democratic processes of the United States which again you know it's worth repeating is highly illegal it's absolutely impeachable conduct Mm -hmm. but you know I'm not sure that Bolton I think people and the media in particular keep looking for this kind of smoking gun or this kind of movie climax to to everything where you know somebody's in the dock and testifying and all of a sudden everybody kind of it all becomes clear to everybody and and everybody their scales shed from everybody's eyes and things Mm. you know I just I just don't think that's what's going to happen it would be really significant to have Bolton testify and to have other witnesses testify again but Again, I just I just don't think Mitt Romney's gonna be the one who, who changes that situation. <laughs> <laughs> what a classic. Yeah, I, it does bring back memories of the um, Republican presidential candidate race where he really was one of the front runners um, against Trump and then Yep. He he yep. sure was and then he wasn't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Enough said. Now, um, one of the interesting elements of the start of this hearing uh, in the Senate is that we've heard from the Democrats um, and there's been a number of um, Democratic senators come up and give speeches and go run through the different testimony that they heard um, in the House and uh, replaying videos from um, people like the Ambassador Gordon Sondland, um, who was the US ambassador to the EU. And um, it was like quite compelling, I found. I was like live streaming it off Twitter. And, you know, it, it was really interesting to see how they were like building this case and, you know, repeating certain phrases and um, this for that kind of like 
emphasising the deal and putting all the context around um, the testimony as well, like highlighting text messages between people and phone call records. It, it was quite forensic to watch and obviously, you know, probably lawyers wrote most of that for them. Um, but a lot of people have complimented Adam Schiff in particular for his oratory skills and how compelling um, his arguments were. What are your thoughts on the Democrats and the, their presentation, um, which happened, uh, I guess, in the first time, first round, and now we're hearing from the president's lawyers? Yeah, look, I think you're right. I think Adam Schiff is, you know, his rhetorical skill is is significant, and as as you said, he he kind of he laid out the evidence really clearly and methodically, and and had a lovely kind of crescendo, I guess, to to the um, to his his speech, his testimony in in front of the Senate. Having said that, you know, I think. Schiff is kind of has been constructed into this hyper-partisan figure. I don't think that's necessarily the truth, but Trump, mm. you know, had, the way Trump has att- attacked Schiff, he's, he calls him, I think it's Shifty Adam Schiff. Yes, he's, 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 he's I was a, just um, looking at that tweet. Um, I found it the other day. I actually was just like, no, this isn't real, is it? <laughs> is, like, I mean, it's a lot of real. them are, but um, he said Shifty Adam Shift is a, in all caps, corrupt politician and probably a very sick man like blah, 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 more, you know, horrible hyperbole that's completely untrue. Um, But like there's a lot – he's attacking – and intimidating a lot of these people, including Adam Schiff, and yeah, he, it's he quite absolutely shocking. is. And he I, he tweeted the other day. I can't remember the, the exact wording, but it was something like Schiff is going to get what's coming to him, or you know, it, it was it was quite threatening. And yeah. I think in the context of American politics, you always have to remember that those those threats are very real. You know, whenever Trump tweets about the um the the four young young congresswomen like AOC, you know, they have to up their security details, like mm. like because they they have a noticeable uptick in their in their death threats that they get all the time which is horrifying but I think Trump has been very effective in kind of constructing this persona for Schiff where he is hyper-partisan where I don't think that's necessarily true you know he has been really methodical in in prosecuting this case and I think quite convincing but I think it's interesting to say that you know while Schiff was was speaking before the Senate, you know, a number of Republican senators weren't even in their seats. So they're technically supposed to be mm. held in contempt. They can technically be arrested for not being in their seats during during this trial. But, you know, that's that's not being enforced, unsurprisingly. So something like 20 of them weren't even in the room, you know, listening to him. So they've been quite dismissive of that. And I don't, unfortunately, I don't think Schiff is going to change any senators' minds necessarily. Now that, you know, he, of course, I think is aware of that. And it's certainly possible that the way that he spoke will affect kind of the broader public, who who is, I think, paying more and more attention to this, mm. especially as things kind of crescendo, because we, we're, we're facing a situation now where if this does go kind of as predicted and the impeachment trial is over by Tuesday next week. On Tuesday, we have the Iowa caucuses as well and Trump's State of the Union speech that night. So so things are, un, it's, it's kind of sounds silly to say, but, but things are, are kind of, we are seeing more of a crescendo, I think, as we lead into the election as well. So shifts, the way that Schiff has presented this case, I think, may play a role in that. And, it, and you know, I think also his appeal to that, you know, we were talking about kind of the nature of Americans and American culture before, the way that he kind of said something, like he finished off his whole speech with give America a fair trial because she's worth it. You know, that does have, I think, a certain appeal to, to part of the electorate. Um, so I think he's played it po- probably as well as he could given the just insanely 
difficult circumstances. Yeah, and this isn't really like a traditional trial where you're um, presenting evidence to a jury or a judge and you're giving rational arguments that would normally be taken seriously and given weight. Exactly. This is an entirely political process. I, I yeah. think it's, it's worth remembering that that impeachment is is completely political. It's not it's not a kind of rational legalistic process. It is overseen by the the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, John Roberts, but he has an entirely ceremonial role. This is all about mm. politics. Yeah. Now, talking about something else that's very political, the Democratic presidential race is heating up, and it's very exciting, I think. Um, and it's also really contentious on Twitter. Like I know a lot of things are, but whenever someone says that they like one candidate over the other or here's why that one's going to win and that one's not, everyone kind of like jumps in yeah. and, and starts making personal attacks because they're offended because you picked the wrong person or, you know, like everyone's one person's team Bernie and the other person's, you know, Elizabeth Warren and they're like, oh, he hates Elizabeth Warren. Elizabeth Warren didn't want to shake his hand and yeah. all this. It gets really like quite, I don't know, tragic. Yeah, it, it is. <laughs> like it, it it absolutely is. But I think that's, you know, it's because there's an awful lot at stake. I think, you know, more so than, than I guess elections in at least my living memory that who wins the democratic primary I think will have enormous enormous consequences and that's why I think people are so deeply invested in this and you know watching polls so closely and trying to understand how the Iowa caucuses might work (laughs) myself included Um, and but it has been really interesting to watch I think you know that that polls are shifting on a daily basis not that you can trust polls at all and I think especially you know I always say this but especially when it comes to the Democratic primaries, looking at the polls Mm. is not going to tell you much because they are, you know, they're they're legitimately crazy the way that they work and difficult to understand. So actually trying to poll, you know, turnout and how people are going to vote, especially when they're caucuses and not straight up votes is it makes it almost impossible to predict I think so so really who knows what's going to happen but Iowa on Tuesday which is the first of the actual it's the first actual test really that Mm. the candidates will face it's the first kind of um, vote it's the first allocation of delegates has a huge impact on on what will happen because it's the first indication I guess of kind of I'm, I'm using air quotes who can win who is yeah. able to win. And then it kind of it, it creates this kind of its momentum of its own because then, you know, the media is reporting on who's won this and who's more likely to win the next set. So it becomes a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy, especially when we look at what the expectations are. So candidates are measured against all these kind of invisible, I guess, criteria that then feeds into how media covers the next set of um, next set of votes, which affects how people see candidates, how much airtime they get. So, so Iowa can be really crucial. And mm. it's worth saying as well that in the last couple of decades, I, there's I think no presidential nominee has not won either Iowa or New Hampshire. So they're they're really significant. Pretty cool. Yeah. And so for those who are unaware, what is a caucus technically and who is voting in this caucus? Yeah, okay, that's it. It's a difficult question to answer. I've been I've been reading up on it, so I get it right. But essentially, what happens? So, so to kind of to zoom out for a, a mm. second, in the Democratic primaries, what happens is is every state in in the United States has a number of delegates which they elect, which go to the Democratic National Convention and then vote for a candidate. So the state 
the state allocates delegates or elects delegates who go to the convention who then cast their vote mm-hmm. for the presidential nominee. And each state has a very different idiosyncratic way of, of choosing those delegates. So Iowa, which is the first, does it on a caucus system, which doesn't mean people going in and casting their votes. And and these it's not just any people, sorry, it's registered Democrats. So yeah. that people who are members of the party can vote in the, in the leadership ballot, essentially. But in Iowa, they do that by having little meetings in, in each of the over 1,300 um, precincts, I think they're called, where basically they um, kind of have a chat and a debate and then literally go and sort of stand in an allocated spot for, each, for the candidate of their choice and then kind of winnow, winnow it away until they've got a majority and then the caucus has decided kind of by almost by consensus on who their candidate, who their preferred candidate is and then each of those then report back to the state convention uh-huh. who then allocate delegates proportionally. So... It's a mess. It's a total mess. Why is it? Why would you create something so complex? Uh, is there any idea? No, it's just it's a kind of. I guess it's a sort of product of of history and and state parties and you know I guess it's kind of the way any party works. Any Western Democratic Party, you kind of from the outside it looks insane, but that's just the way it is, you know. And Iowa is always first, and there there have been repeated attempts to make Iowa not first because and there's certainly yeah. an argument for that because Iowa demographically is not at all representative of the United States. It's, it's almost totally white, so mm. there's, there are real concerns there about how that affects because it has such an influence on the on the race after that. But it just you know nobody's kind of been able to shift the the influence of Iowa and New Hampshire in these kind of strange meetings where people stand in allocated spots and then get convinced by somebody in, a, in another spot for another candidate so kind of walk across the room and join another little group. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's it's crazy. It's, it's really weird, yeah. yeah. And interesting though that they do put Iowa first, as you say, because given it's so influential and it kind of almost indicates who might be the final winner, like that almost seems a bit ridiculous and makes the rest of the process redundant. Yeah, look, that's certainly an argument um, that can be made and I I think it it is almost true. You know, you can sort of see it playing out that way that somebody wins in Iowa and then they get all this momentum. And because it's also, you know, what I didn't mention was that donations become crucial because if if big donors see somebody win in Iowa and go, all right, this Mm. person can win, then the donations start flowing. Or, you know, conversely, if somebody, a candidate, especially if a candidate who's expected to do well in Iowa doesn't do well, then, you know, they just kind of shed money. And and so that means, you know, we may even see after Iowa, we may even see candidates drop out for that reason. So it does have this enormous influence, I think. But of course, it, it doesn't necessarily decide who the candidate is. So about a month after Iowa, we have what's called Super Tuesday, yep. where 12 states allocate their delegates, and that also can have a really big influence on on the kind of momentum and fundraising potential that candidates have. So, so it's not it's not worth tuning out after Iowa, but Iowa can give us a big indication. And I think if if Sanders wins. Um, which the polls are suggesting he will. And again, you know, I refer you back to my comments about yes. polls earlier. But that, I think, could be explosive because Sanders is is pretty terrifying, I think, to, to some of the Democratic National Committee and the kind of, I guess, establishment types um, who, who are really concerned by what they see as Sanders' radicalism and the threat he poses to kind of, I guess, you know, the establishment, essentially. So it will be really interesting to see how and if coverage changes if he does win. Mm. Now... I do want to touch on Bernie Sanders um, because I noted that he actually 
has been ahead in fundraising and has really been powered by small donations. I think it was an average of like $23 or something like that. He was on um, the Colbert show and it was like really interesting to see that I mean, I feel like he had a lot of political momentum um, in 2016 with all these celebrities kind of coming forward and being like, it's cool to like Bernie. And, you know, there was a lot of like celebrity around him. Yep. Whereas now, although that still is kind of there, it feels like it's a little bit more sober and serious and he's got a bit more, um, I don't know, meat behind him, like yeah, some I, substance. I think that's true. His his ground game is is really strong. I think especially amongst young people, um, he has been a real energising force and that's why, as you say, that, you know, he is powered by small donations and I think that's also why in some way like Iowa, Sanders is really strong because his campaign is based on kind of ground level organising and people people talking to people. So he, he mm. has been able to get especially young people out on the streets kind of canvassing, um, I think, which is really significant that he has this momentum and this energy that I think other candidates – Elizabeth Warren, I think, does have a, a similar kind of ground game and, and energy, but other candidates like um, Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar have kind of struggled as well to get that kind of mass momentum behind them. Um, so I, I do think that's why Sanders is is probably surging in Iowa. And, of yeah. course, as we said, that momentum kind of begets momentum. Mm. So. We're going to have a quick break and then we're going to finish off with a couple of the other Democratic candidates and uh, then we'll head into some music. I'll be back with you in just a moment. The Apollo Bay Seafood Festival returns this February for three days of festivities including seafood dinners, fresh catch markets and sustainability discussions with industry and local experts including Bruce Pascoe and Matthew Evans. Plus the Saturday Harbour Day featuring live music from Nookie Bomber's Bustamento, The Beachniks, Crepes, Sagamore, Dreamin' Wild and The Fillmores. Apollo Bay Seafood Festival, February 14 to 16. Tickets on sale now from ApolloBaySeafoodFestival.com. Triple R Sponsors. Moondog Craft Brewery has recently opened their huge new venue and brewery in Preston. Moondog World features a giant lagoon, full kitchen, 72 taps and regular events, plus DJs playing soul, funk and disco Thursday to Sunday. Throughout January, Triple R subscribers can show their card to get a free pot with every visit. Find Moondog on social media for more info. Moondog, sponsoring Triple R. The City of Stonington presents The Classics, a three-part series of free Saturday evening outdoor concerts in February. This Saturday, experience Puccini's political thriller Tosca, performed in the round Under the Stars featuring a world-class cast. Opera at Victoria Gardens Paran, this Saturday from 7.30pm. Entry is free. City of Stonington, sponsoring Triple R. You are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3, Triple R FM with me, Amy Mullins, and we're back to finish off our conversation with Dr Emma Shortis, who is based at the RMIT EU Study Centre, and we are talking about US politics, particularly finishing out this discussion on the Democratic presidential candidate race and the Iowa caucus. Uh, And we have seen a number of Democratic uh, debates and sometimes they are quite mind-numbing, I've got to say, because the questions are just pointless. Um, And 
So long. So long. <laughs> and there are like quite a number of candidates. And funnily enough, um, not all of them often get up yeah. because of polling. And as you said, polling isn't all that reliable. Um, and one of those ones who didn't get up was Andrew Wang, I think is his name. That's right, yep. yeah. Yeah, um, he's still in the race, but he didn't get into the last debate. And uh, he's an entrepreneur, as many people are. Um, and, it, like, it's interesting, though, that we have seen um, an Asian-American who has a, a son who is, um, you know, disabled, and he's been focusing on a number of kind of social issues but he still has a kind of economically conservative way of thinking and he's almost kind of saying I'm a businessman Trump's a businessman I can fix your problems better than politicians can which is like fascinating to watch he doesn't really have much of a shot does he look I don't think so you know I'm very careful in these predictions because uh, like a lot of so-called experts you know I've I've been wrong before (laughs) about a very significant presidential candidate but I don't think so and that is precisely because he's not getting enough in the polls you know as flawed Mm. as they are to qualify for those debates so just getting the airtime I think is really difficult and also just the kind of logistical minefield of tr- of trying to f- amass delegates in every single state you know having enough money to to canvas in Iowa and uh, and across the United States I think will be an obstacle for someone someone like Yang um who who is a really interesting candidate you know as you say he's kind of conservative in a way but then also mis- mixes some interesting progressive policies like a universal basic income but not quite, you know. He's mm. he's kind of just saying he's going to hand out a thousand dollars to to everybody. I think is that that's not that I'm mischaracterizing his, <laughs> his policy. But you know, he he has these kind of um, I guess really interesting little mind bombs that he likes to throw in to yeah. s- kind of see what will happen. But we haven't seen him on the national debate stage, and he, I don't think he's even polling in Iowa. That it, you know, at least yeah. not in the top five in, yeah. in the last one that I saw. So he may hang around for a while. You know, he's got a little bit of money behind him, but it's worth remembering that mm. uh, many of these candidates kind of – they know they, they can't win, I think. This is about building national profile yeah. and often coming back for a second or a third go, you yeah. know, in, in four or eight years. It's funny because he does have some charisma and makes a few jokes about like, oh, I don't know how I'm still here. It's yeah. kind of funny. Yeah, that's right. He does. Yeah. And I think he and some of the other younger candidates have ha- had a bit of fun kind of riffing off the the age of the of the front runners, you know, because <laughs> they are pretty old, yep. kind of relatively speaking. They certainly are. And um, let's just finish off with some of those other front runners and I guess um, as I was discussing off air with you, there's this kind of discussion going on really about, and it's quite an existential uh, dilemma for the Democrats because in 2016 they picked the hawkish Hillary Clinton who is quite conservative in a relative sense to Bernie Sanders and she was kind of like a a little bit wishy-washy in the sense of let's unite the country and you know social values and family and diversity which are all good things but they weren't like necessarily getting to the nitty-gritty of what Bernie Sanders was offering in 2016 and I feel like we're almost at that stage again where we're going are you connected like what's the temperature of um, middle America and the working class of America and what is going to speak to them in terms of their lived experiences and of course that would be a very different experience depending on where you live and how much money you earn and you know 
your education. Um, so, you know, it definitely varies, but there is this dilemma of like, do we go with a more moderate conservative quote unquote candidate like Joe Biden or Michael Bloomberg, although Bloomberg doesn't look like he'd get very far, Pete Buttigieg, you know, those people who are like consensus yeah. apparently. Um, or, you know, do we go with someone like Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren um, who are a little bit more radical um, and and kind of maybe tap into a form of left-wing, not populism in the sense of like, you know, a negative thing, but of course of, of trying to actually take the temperature of the masses mm-hmm. and get to, you know, a I guess a broader shared experience. What are your thoughts on that that setup where it's kind of like a this versus that, and you know who's going to be more likely to beat Trump? Yeah, look, I, I think you've you've hit the nail on the head. There are there are kind of multiple debates going on at once in this in this case, and the, the major one is you're absolutely right about who who is best placed to to beat Trump is it somebody a kind of as you say a, a uniting candidate who can who can kind of win back those democrats who swung for Trump in in 2016 and that is how Joe Biden is positioning himself as mm. the kind of unity candidate who can who can appeal to all aspects of America and play this kind of role of of healer i suppose that's how he elder statesman yeah exactly that's how he's kind of positioning himself and then within that as well because Biden is of course so deeply connected to President Obama and the Obama administration, there's this debate about Obama's legacy. And if, you know, if you choose someone like Sanders, does that mean you're repudiating everything that Obama, you know, the promise of Obama? Are we we saying that Obama has failed? And that debate, I think, is still going on in the Democratic Party. Elizabeth Warren kind of walks a little bit of a line in that one because Mm. she was part of the Obama administration. You know, she played a a huge role post-global financial crisis in trying to bring big corporations to account and can kind of um, carry her, carry herself, I think, sorry, she, she I think, has a lot to hold on to there because she kind of tried to pull Obama further to the left in his response. So she can kind of hold on to Obama's legacy but at the same time say, you know, I'm kind of more radical and I'm more progressive and I'm going to hold on to it, whereas Biden mm. is kind of, you know, I guess trying to get back that the hope, the hopey changey stuff, as as Sarah Palin would say from from Obama. But then you have Sanders, I think, who is saying no, we're not, you know, we're not chasing those kind of centrist arguments about unity in that sense. You know, I think Sanders certainly wants to unify America, but in a very different way, in a kind of left populist way, as you say. And and that word populism is an interesting one because mm. it's often used as a negative. You know, Sanders is Sanders is just the left wing Trump. And I think that's a ridiculous argument. You know, they're they're not they're not the same. We're not talking yes. about two ends of a spectrum. This is this is very different. So Sanders' argument is is both to go over those to go after those voters who swung for Trump in 2016, but by making policy arguments to them, not by sending them a message of unity, by saying, you know, Trump doesn't care about you and these are the policies that are going to help you in your life and it's things like universal health care and, and yeah. progressive tax reform, etc. So, So that is the fight that's going on. Basically an argument between kind of centrism and, and unity in the sense of healing and then an argument about progressivism and unity in the in a in a policy sense in a in a way that will economically and and culturally and socially change people's lives for the better and and at the moment in Iowa it looks like Sanders is winning that argument but mm. you know, it remains to be seen indeed and just finally we saw that 
Bernie did get a lot of that kind of um, grassroots vote of the Democratic Party um, last time around. And certainly there was controversy around um, a number of key people in leadership positions being pro-Clinton um, and obviously part of that establishment of the Democrats who've been there a long time, want to protect their power and their legacy, et cetera, et cetera, have vested interests and do receive money from large corporates as opposed to people like um, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie who are doing very grassroots type um, fundraising. So in your mind, um, what do you think of like that element yeah, look, I think it's it's very difficult to predict. As you say, I think a lot of establishments, establishment Democrats who kind of in the in the national committee would would absolutely prefer someone like Buttigieg um, mm. or Klobuchar as well. She's yeah, quite Amy popular. Klobuchar. Um, yeah, in that they are kind of centrist and a, and a, a more, I guess, tinkerers. You know, they're kind of saying this this system is is kind of the system is solid. We just kind of need to tinker with it, and and we'll be okay. And they're still taking donations from big corporations. You know, I saw an article in the Guardian the other day that Buttigieg, who is a graduate of McKinsey, um, the big kind of consulting firm, is is taking lots of money from McKinsey. So I think mm. establishment types would be m- much happier with him. And and you know that's why we saw the New York Times endorse both Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar at once because they're kind of not sure how to deal with this this rift I guess between between the party um I honest like to be perfectly honest I have yeah. no idea how that's going to play out as we get to the Democratic National Convention mm-hmm. it, it will depend on so much I think the the kind of system of of super delegates you know there's this argument of course that the super delegates and the De- Democratic National Committee um again air quotes stole the nomination from Bernie Sanders mm-hmm. to give it to Hillary Clinton last time around I think they'll be very wary of creating that narrative again but I also think they may panic if they think Sanders is going to win um, and it, again it will depend on how close it is if Sanders is if it's really it comes down to the wire I think they will you know probably try to influence but if Sanders wins outright you know will they risk that I, there are too many unknowns and you know uh, probably three or four months ago, I was kind of saying, well, actually, I think Cory Booker is probably the perfect like middle ground candidate. And he dropped out like several weeks ago. Yeah. So what do I know? Like- <laughs> <laughs> um, it does remind me that a documentary is coming out about Hillary, I think it is. Um, and we're getting all these like little kind of snippets of what's in the documentary and it's kind of being used as news to try and get get interest in this documentary. But it did actually tie into this kind of oh, like I don't know, there must be a lot of ill feeling between yeah, between them. So. But, yeah, Hillary did say, you know, some not nice things about Bernie Sanders, like people don't like him. Yeah, no, no one likes him. No one yeah. likes Sanders. And, look, you know, I, I think the, the way this played out it was was very interesting, but it, it's true that I think in Hillary Clinton's circle no one likes Bernie Sanders. But, but on the ground, people organising, you know, within the party, I think there are a lot of people that, that really like Bernie Sanders, which is evidenced by the fact I really, something that stood out to me that um, Joe Rogan, who who some listeners may not know, but who is a um, hugely influential podcaster in the United States, he has millions and millions of viewers, and he's he's famous for interviewing Elon Musk, and you know they smoked a joint together. So all these pictures <laughs> kind of came out. That's how he That's sort of came funny. to more national prominence. But he's endorsed Bernie Sanders, mm. and that will have a huge influence. So when Hillary Clinton says no one likes Sanders, the fact that Joe Rogan has endorsed him is significant and shows that actually potentially millions of people like Sanders. Yeah. So, 
I felt like when I saw that, it's just a panic. It's like, oh, we could actually be losing this. Let I'm a bit desperate now. Let's just kind of fling mud against the yeah. wall and see what sticks. Yeah, which I think with Sanders again is is not working that well because he has been remarkably consistent across his political career for decades. Yeah, and so yeah. digging up you know so called dirt on him is is very difficult because mm. he is and you know he's also willing to stand by pretty much everything he said. Um, you know he he has that I guess that kind of strength and what his supporters would see as integrity. So so those tactics don't necessarily work on Sanders because he doesn't care. Yeah, um, and and I think you know, seasoned political operatives don't quite know what to do with that. And and the landscape is changing so fast underneath everybody that they're just not sure how to respond. It's so ridiculous. And um, just to finish this, I did just note only two hours ago that apparently a group of Democrats are going to try and put together a fund to take down Bernie Sanders if he wins in Iowa there you go. Mm. So it's already it's it's starting already. Look, I I do think he has a lot of people very worried. So it will be very interesting to see how people respond. Do you know what? I kind of like it when they're worried because it means you must might be doing something right. That's, that's probably true. I yeah. think. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Emma. It's been really fun. That's my pleasure. to talk to you and fascinating. Thanks, Amy. I've been speaking with Dr. Emma Shortis. She is based at the RMIT EU Study Centre and uh, is an expert on many things, including US politics and uh, environmental history in Antarctica, just, you know, as you do. Uh, So check out Emma's great work. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. You are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM 102.7 FM on your dial if you're listening on the radio, in the car, at home, or maybe you're streaming it online at rrr.org.au or the app. There's so many ways, and it's really wonderful that we do get to reach such a broad audience. It also um, is great, I think, for me, and I certainly personally think this, that I get to speak with people across the country and overseas. And in this case, I get to speak with Dr. Manu Saunders, who is an ecologist based at the University of New England. She's also uh, the co-founder of the Wild Pollinator Count. And I'm really pleased to welcome Dr. Saunders to talk about a a number of topics, really. Um, They're all very interconnected, though, and we're going to be discussing... um, Uh, our gardens as an ecosystem, how it supports um, the nature and environment uh, around you and particularly thinking about native wildlife and um, flora and fauna and insects and pollinators. Uh, So we're going to be talking about a range of things, but really bringing it to your home and um, your lived experiences with insects and and your garden. Um, So I'm really pleased now to welcome Dr. Saunders. Hi there. Hi, good morning. Morning. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, I know that um, I've been reading your blog posts and it's a really wonderful blog, I've got to say. It's um, ecologyisnotadirtyword.com, which is a fantastic <laughs> title. And uh, and I did note that you um, have been having some upheavals of your own over summer, um, given where you're based at the moment. So I just wanted to touch on that, given that that's, um, you know, personally where you are and presumably where your garden is. 
Yes. Um, yeah, we had the bushfire um, crisis sort of started up here back in August, uh, late August, September. Um, and uh, we this followed on, obviously, from the really bad drought. So the New England region has been um, – we didn't really get much rain at all uh, the previous year. So the landscape was very beige. <laughs> it was very depressing. Um, towns were running out of water. So some of the towns um, around us had uh, dropped to, um, you know, they were trucking in water and so on. Armadale itself had suddenly gone on to water restrictions for the first time in, in forever. Um, so, yeah, the bushfire sort of crisis started then. And at the time, you know, it was early and they were bad, but, you know, it, it sort of hadn't gotten to the point that it is now where um, I think perhaps people weren't paying as much attention because it was just another year of, of fires. Um, but, yeah, by by. December, November, December, they were still some the fires around us were still going. We'd had weeks and weeks of the smoke, um, the horrible smoke that mm. we're seeing now in Canberra and, and Melbourne and Sydney. Um, you know, breathing that in, which is not very pleasant as no. everyone knows. Um and just the relentless it yeah, it was it was quite an interesting experience, just the relentless sort of stress and anxiety of it for weeks at a time. Yeah, it, it's really hard to um, have that really long sustained stress and I can only imagine that given that um, Victoria didn't have such as long, um, I guess, issues and we didn't mm. see our bushfire season start when New South Wales obviously started so much earlier as you've just indicated and um, and certainly, yeah, this summer wasn't really that relaxing as I've said on the show earlier mm. for, for <laughs> anyone really um and, and i'm really interested in this the fact that you are an ecologist and so you're looking at um this with a really interesting lens and a very well-informed one too and i was thinking um and this is probably a good segue into our discussion about um the insects and those populations of insects who would have been affected by the bushfires and um, the fact that they are a very important food source for different animals and the platypus I'm, mm. I'm thinking of as one example. Um, but we often we think about like the furry animals who, of course, are, you know, um, absolutely struggling um, with food and, and burns and all that kind of thing. Mm. But what is the, um, the impact of bushfires on insect populations? Yeah, it's um, it's complicated, and I think um, you know because we have in, the insect, you know, fauna collectively has such huge diversity of you know different types of lifestyles and life cycles and habitat needs and resource needs, and so you know there's there's over two hundred thousand species of insects in Australia, um, and you know some they live absolutely everywhere in all types of habitats. Some live in water, some underground, some in trees, and so on. So it's really hard to sort of make one general statement about what has happened to insects and. Mm that is obviously compounded by the lack of data. We just, you know, haven't had as much research attention on insects in Australia historically as we have for the um, larger animals. So there's very little data from a lot of these places that have burnt um, baseline data of populations. So we, you know, we don't really know what was there before it burnt. So we now can't really say what might have been lost mm. after it burnt. So there's all these kind of issues, issues with... Um, 
you know, it, it makes it really hard to actually put a number on how many we've lost or which ones we've lost. And I think the other thing that um, is really cool about insects is a lot of them can be quite resilient and some actually respond really well to fire and will benefit from, from the fire-affected um, system. So it's not all doom and gloom. Um, it's, yeah, it's just hard to sort of <laughs> put put exact statements on it as, as you can with things like koalas where we know yeah. everything about them and how they live and where they live. Exactly. And you can track them because I know sometimes um, yeah. they will actually have a tracker um, or a tag put on them so we can tell, you know, it's not if it's the same koala coming back to a certain area. Mm. And I know that um, your uh, project that you've co-founded and it's been running for a number of years, Wild Pollinator Count, um, would be quite useful, I guess, in having or creating a richer data source from uh, citizen scientists and interested people of the public um, who are really engaged with their garden and with um, insects and bees and all the kind of parts of um, their surroundings depending on where they live. And I really uh, wanted to touch on that before we get into some um, elements of of people's gardens and the ecosystem. Um, I wanted to understand a little bit about that project and um, why you founded it and how it's actually kind of grown and, and evolved over time. Sure. Um, yeah. So it's it's a it's a really fun project that's focused on counting pollinators, basically, as the name suggests. <laughs> um, and so the reason uh, I started it was um, some years ago when I was doing my PhD on on wild pollinators. And the more I was sort of talking to people about my work and what I was doing, the more I realised that a lot of people um, didn't actually realise how many native insects and especially pollinator species we had in the country and so the european honeybee gets a lot of the attention and it's sort of portrayed in media a lot as being the only pollinator that we rely on for all crops um the reality is that it doesn't pollinate every crop and it's not the most effective pollinator for some plants and especially some of our native plants and we have heaps and heaps of these other insects so native bees and flies and wasps and butterflies and all these amazing things that are really critical to pollination in our backyards in our crop systems and in our you know beautiful forests and national parks that we love so that sort of got me thinking oh you know how can I just get people to get outside and have a look at what's there and maybe realize themselves that honeybees aren't the only pollinator so that was kind of where it started Mm. um and we are we're the only national citizen science project that focuses on pollinators and it's also a bit cool because we ask people to tell us not just the counts of the insects they see but the flower they were watching at the time so we get that interaction um, level which is really important for understanding how plants and pollinators are actually interacting in our landscapes. That is just so fantastic. I want to um, let people know the website in case they want to um, start looking into it because I know um, it would be a great project to involve kids in as well as adults. Um, like it's, you can look at more information at wildpollinatorcount.com um, for those who are interested. Um, but I also am interested in that idea that you've said here that the honeybee gets a lot of attention, um, particularly the European one. And uh, in one of your recent articles with 
colleagues on the conversation. You were talking about uh, the fact that there are more than 20,400 known bee species in the world and about 1,650 are native to Australia. Um, so mm. there's such a diversity. You would, I mean, a lot of people might look around and think most bees are the same. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and, I mean, we have some absolutely beautiful, amazing um, insects here that are native. Um, yeah, a lot of people have probably seen a native bee in their garden and maybe didn't even realise what it was. Um, uh, you know, everything, I think, can look like flies sometimes. <laughs> Anything that's kind of black with wings can maybe pe- people might think it's a fly and so on. So mm. um, often it's it's mostly the more distinctive, colourful ones that people notice as different and go, oh, I haven't seen that before, what is it, and, and go and find out. But, you know, a lot of the the there are a lot of black bees that just look like flies to some people. <laughs> and it's hard to, I mean, even even specialists, like a lot of them haven't even been named specifically by scientists, mm-hmm. by taxonomists. So even um, ecologists like myself that are working on these species can't actually identify a lot of them, and especially when it's just flying past in your garden. So don't feel bad if you can't ID them. Um, <laughs> but it's good to just get the idea of the basic differences so you can tell sort of what's the difference between a bee, a fly and a wasp and Exactly, so yeah. And um, in your recent blog post, you highlighted that there are about 5 million estimated insect species in the world. And um, as you've just alluded to, only 1 million of those species have scientific names. So um, it, it does really highlight just how much we are behind. And I guess it's also sometimes a similar challenge in looking at um, plants because there are a number of plants that haven't even um, got names or that they're actually like a subset of a certain species but they've always been put in one group. Um, So there's a lot of work still to be done in your field which I guess is good for you isn't it? (laughs) Definitely um, yeah it keeps you on your toes but it is um, you know insects are uh, the most abundant and diverse group of animals out of all the animals. So, um, yeah, even though they get overlooked a lot, they are absolutely critical to to our ecosystems. Mm. And I know a lot of people with their own gardens would have a bit of a love-hate relationship with insects, depending on the insect. Um, you know, yeah. some people have had their rose bushes uh, attacked by certain insects or, you know, um, I'm thinking that uh, we have some vegetables in our garden and I know that uh, there are some certain insects who are really enjoying my kale at the moment, Uh <laughs> like every species but they don't like curly kale for some reason so interesting yeah there's some very fascinating choices um they are connoisseurs i guess of of food um but it certainly can be frustrating for some people when their gardens are impacted by insects and a lot of people and as you've said in articles would think about how do i get rid of these insects what kind of um I guess, chemical could I use or natural um, material could I use to get rid of them? Um, And there are a number of kind of, I guess, reactions that people could have to that Mm. situation. Maybe they got a bit upset about their roses. Um, (laughs) So I was interested in your argument about the fact that maybe we shouldn't necessarily jump to um, chemicals and um, toxic 
types of materials when we're dealing with uh, insects that might disrupt some of our plants. And I, I was also particularly interested in weeds and how um, you were saying that some of the weeds that we have are actually very beneficial uh, for pollinators. And so you may not feel or you sh- maybe you shouldn't feel too guilty about not mowing the lawn if there are mm. some, you know, weed, weedy flowers sprouting that the bees are getting into. Definitely. Um, yeah, I think um, this. that's why I sort of wrote that article, you know, your, your garden is an ecosystem, basically. <laughs> and I think, um, you know, when we, when we see the aphids on our rose bushes or the, the white cabbage moths on our kale or whatever, um, you know, it's important to remember that they're all part of a web of interactions. They don't just exist on their own. So think about... Um, why they are there and when when you're having an outbreak of them there's usually a reason why there is an outbreak and often you know we know from research from crop systems and that sort of thing that um, you know the more we kind of spray chemicals or or manage the landscape in a way that we actually reduce the populations of natural enemies the good insects we then can end up seeing these outbreaks of pest insects because there's no there's none of those um, predatory insects that are there to control their populations. So if we manage the garden in a similar way, we can sort of focus on those interactions. If we support and enhance the populations of the beneficial species, the wasps and the predatory flies and the beetles and that sort of thing, we will end up seeing a reduction in pests over time. That is a really interesting thing. It's kind of like nature needs to strike a balance and if it gets out of whack, then there are all these other consequences we may not mm. expect. Yeah, definitely. Now, um, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say and a similar thing with the weeds and, and um, things like dandelions. Uh, bees absolutely love them. Um, and especially if you're living, so at the moment I'm in a rental property, we can't do anything to the garden because of um, the landlord's rules. And there is no garden. It's basically just a lawn because that's <laughs> that was their choice. Um, so at the moment, all we have is dandelions to support the bees in our yard. So you know, of course, we're not going to mow because it's really important. If we if we mowed them and got rid of them or sprayed them, there would be no food in our garden. That is quite brilliant. I feel like anyone who is the um, designated mower of lawns needs to uh, use that as a reason why they're not mowing the lawns on the weekend. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> it's all for the environment. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, I've, I was really interested in this idea of the good predators and there's one um, that I know a lot of people have fondness for, which is um, the ladybird beetle. And I feel yes. like anecdotally that there have been less um in gardens, like it feels like there, I've seen them less, and because um, I know a lot of people would see them, they're quite striking and, and red with the spots, and people like to kind of you know put them on their hand and interact. And it's one of those mm. few insects I feel that people might have a, an emotional connection to. And the, the similarly, Christmas beetles, I know a lot of people have you know highlighted that and wondered whether. There've been less of them. Um, what What are your thoughts on how do you attract more of those um, beetles that we love and that also do have quite a important role to play in our gardens? Yeah, definitely. I think um, so. You know, the insects are quite insect populations can be quite localized because they're small and they often don't travel very far. 
um, com- you know, compared to birds and, and larger animals. Um, you know, we, we do tend to see these localised effects. So people might say that, that they're seeing declines or they don't see as many of a particular species in their patch and on the other side of town someone might be having an outbreak sort of thing. So mm-hmm. um, it's important sort of not to... Um, think that you know freak they, out. they're not yeah not freak out not declining ever <laughs> Christmas beetles is a classic example mm. I know a few people have been saying that they haven't seen any and cicadas as well there was a lot of talk on social media about people saying they hadn't seen any cicadas this summer yet yeah. where I I am there's been hundreds and I was up in Queensland a few weeks ago and there were literally thousands of them so they are in some places and maybe not others um with the ladybird beetles, they're they're awesome. Yes, we all love them. Um, <laughs> there's about 500 species or so of oh, ladybird wow. beetle in Australia. So, um, yeah, the, there's a few that you sort of are the common ones that everyone kind of sees in their garden. But there's also a lot of other different types that maybe are a little bit rarer or less common or only found in certain areas. Um, generally speaking, we had a really pretty good year for ladybirds last year we had quite a few of the little orange and black ones in our garden um they again they go where the resources are so if there's lots of aphids you often find that they'll sort of come if there's enough habitat um, to support them and by that i mean you know we just need that diversity in the garden we need lots of different kinds of flowers and and structure so things like lots of leaf litter and a little bit of dead wood and you know different Mm. heights of plants and all that kind of stuff creates and even messy areas you know resist the urge to clean up things and um you know even dead leaves can be important habitat that have fallen off deciduous trees so all of those things create little niches and you know habitats micro habitats for these insects to survive in so Mm. um yeah, it's it's a pretty easy way to manage your garden. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds fantastic. Um, and maybe it's good. It'll make people a bit more chilled out about, you know, whether it looks pretty or neat at times. Um, people can let it be a bit wild. Yeah, um, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> I was really um, keen to understand um, some more about plants that are native to Australia and how important they might be in um, our gardens and our ecosystems because uh, I know a lot of people might um, pick flowers for example based on what they look like how often they bloom and you know what color they are um, and that's obviously you know a fair enough reason but there are a number of kind of indigenous plants like grassy um, plants and flowers that aren't necessarily the most kind of beautiful in a in a typical stereotypical sense but they are um you know kind of important to a certain or a local area's diversity and ecosystem so kind of how do you think when you're thinking about your garden and and how you might plan it or how you might expand it or if there's a a plant that needs replacing um what the new options could be how would you approach it um, I think obviously um, natives should be sort of the priority and I mean they're beautiful I, I love them and I go for them just because I love them because mm. most of them have such beautiful flowers um, I think the most important thing to think about in when you're planning a garden is to have um, diversity across time as, as not not just in space so we we need to have things flowering all throughout the year not just everything flowering at once in spring or whatever. So if you think about that, we have lots of different varieties of of native plants that flower in autumn and some in spring and some in summer and so on. So if you get that range of 
of different things flowering at different times of the year, you, you are more likely to support a healthy, diverse insect population. Um, and also, yes, like you mentioned, things like grasses and um, things like that or you know, plants that maybe don't have very obvious showy flowers, but they can still be important resources. So grass pollen can still be a food source for many insects, um, even though we don't really notice grass flowers and don't think of them as a flower. Um, and they're wind pollinated, so they don't need um, the insects to visit for pollination, but the bees still can collect pollen from them and it can be a food source from them. So thinking about that sort of stuff, even though I love natives, I think some exotic plants, I don't think we should be too <laughs> um, pedantic about it. I think, you know, there are many exotic plants that bees also love, things like lavender, all those lovely plants that we love to have mm. in our gardens as well. You know, a lot of, especially blue-banded bees, they love um, things like lavender and salvia and, um, you know, those cosmos flowers and all those kinds of pretty things. Um, they're also just as great at attracting insects and do really do really well so don't feel too bad if you want to have a few <laughs> of those types of flowers in there because they're pretty or you like them um but yeah just mainly focusing on that diversity across time and space and different colors and different shapes of flowers um yeah just think diversity <laughs> yeah i feel like that's nearly always the answer isn't it diversity yes. Um, now just to, uh, I guess, close out our discussion, cause I know you have to run. Um, but I was interested in alternatives to insecticide and what people could do. Like one of the answers you've given, or probably the main answer, I guess, is to make sure that your garden's in balance and that you're not kind of killing off all the good bugs as well as the bad bugs. But are there ways to manage some of those bugs while you're trying to, I guess, get get some balance back into your garden? Are there natural ways that one can kind of deal with them or at least may, deter them from eating our um, vegetables? Yeah, I think there's, I mean, it depends on your garden and, and where you live as well and what sort of um, system you have. But um, there's lots of ways you can enhance um, natural enemies yourself. You can actually buy um eggs and, and adults of some of the predators like ladybirds and lacewings and those sorts of insects. You can buy them from some places online um, and release them into your garden, but just make sure you <laughs> check. Uh, <laughs> the spe Most of them are fairly common species, so that should be fine, but just obviously check mm. that you're not releasing something exotic <laughs> into your garden. Yes. Um, and... Uh, a lot of things, so passive traps, so obviously the things like the fruit fly pheromone trap that attracts the flies and kills them to in the trap without having to actually spray the garden, those sorts mm. of things. So you, there's lots of different options and it depends what you're trying to control. But the main, if you really don't want to be using chemicals at all, which is ideal in, in home gardens, you shouldn't be spraying them unless, you know, it really is a danger to public health or something. Um you can just manage the garden. It's more about managing cultural management of the garden and how you create that habitat and how you enhance those uh, natural enemy species. 
Mm-hmm. Um, now, Dr. Saunders, just before I let you go, I just had one question that propped up and it was um, on The Guardian, I think, over the summer holidays. And because of a, a kind of popularity of um, almonds and a, a need to mass produce almonds more with the advent of things like almond milk, um, there was this discussion around bees and their role uh, in pollinating almonds and how they're um, really being, I guess, overworked in some areas of the world, including California, um, and that it may not be particularly good for them. How do we strike a balance um, for our pollinators and make sure that they're being looked after with things like uh, agriculture and not just our own gardens, but the, you know our food sources? Uh, great question. I think um, so. I did most of my uh, research has been on pollinators in orchard systems, and I actually did my PhD on pollinators in the almond plantations oh, in Western Victoria. Amazing. <laughs> um, so yeah, the the what I found in that research was that they're because of the way they're managed. So the the large um, commercial plantations are managed very similarly to those California ones. So it is literally, you know, hectares, thousands and thousands of hectares of just almond trees and nothing else. They completely remove all the ground cover. So there's, there is mm. no plant diversity at all in those orchards. So obviously there were no <laughs> wild bees in the orchards either. Um, and most of them are hanging around those edges or in the native vegetation and not coming into the orchard because there's nothing there for them when you think about um, you know, these orchards flower once in a two to three week period in August, late August, and then that's it for the rest of the year. They're just a desert. So, of course, nothing is going to survive in there. Um, bees won't be able to reproduce because there's no pollen in there for them and so on. So they're really – that it's – yeah, it, these sort of monoculture crop systems are not good for biodiversity because – which is kind of their point. They've been designed to get rid of biodiversity because they perceive it to be um, more economical and, and so on. But mm. we do really need to think going forward that is this the best way that we need to be managing this for a lot of different reasons. It's not just about bees. Um, it's, you know, we're seeing impacts on landscape um, level diversity. We're seeing impacts on other animals, um, birds and so on that that inhabit those landscapes. So we definitely need... There's a lot of evidence showing that we need more diversity in agricultural systems. Plant diversity provides so many benefits and so many different ecosystem services. It's not not just for pollinators. Um, so we really do need better management practices to to incorporate and enhance that diversity in crop systems. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Saunders, and uh, I really appreciate you sharing your great expertise with us today, and I hope it's um, got people a little bit enthusiastic about their garden and uh, maybe they'll become scientists themselves and take part in the wild pollinator count, which I think it's coming up in April, the next one. Yes, April. It's twice a year in April and November. Excellent. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you have a great week. Thank you so much. It was great to talk to you. I've just been speaking with Dr. Manu Saunders. She is an ecologist based at the University of New England, and she also writes um, a blog, uh, ecologyisnotadirtyword.com, and uh, she's written many articles for The Conversation, and uh, she also, as I said, is co-founder of The Wild Pollinator Count, which uh, you can find online and take part in. It's all really quite fun, I think. Um, and also, I should mention that I've noticed 
a number of land care groups have uh, set up their own Indigenous nurseries that you can visit and uh, buy a range of seedlings um, and they can certainly be really important because they're based on the local ecology of your area and what is most important to that area, what thrives there um, and it's really a great kind of community initiative I think. So uh, yeah, there are a number of those and you can um, do that I think by searching land care and nursery and or and or talking to your local land care group because um, there's a number of them in this great state of Victoria and uh, yeah hope you uh, get excited about your garden at the moment there's some beautiful beautiful uh, flowers flowering I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.